difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias. Genevieve is currently fleeing the coastline due to an unexpected wave of Lake Kaiju hitting the shores of Chicago, but she'll be back on future episodes, broadcasting from a safer, undisclosed location. Every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at the bookends of a film series that made the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest-running film franchise in history. Normally, this is where we'd put an elaborate little playlet leading up to introducing this week's films, but this week, we're far too grim and serious about facing our choices and the heavy responsibilities they bring with them, so we're just going to dive straight in. Keith? What? No, no, I... I told you I was never going to release my thoughts on these movies to the world. They're too dangerous. I swore you to secrecy. What if they fall into the wrong hands? I broke my promise because it was too important, Keith. Someone has to discuss these movies for the betterment of all humanity. Okay, but just this once, and I'm burning my notes afterward. Who knows what dark purposes they could be put to otherwise? This is just a movie podcast. People talk about movies all the time. Who knows what dark purposes these film opinions could be put to otherwise? For the good of humanity, I'm burning my notes. They're on your computer. I won't need them where I'm going from here. Let this be the last time anyone ever talks about Godzilla's, because if people continue to discuss these movies, more Godzilla's might arise. I, I, I don't think that's how sequels or franchises it actually... It all started in 1954 with Ishiro Honda's Godzilla, a Japanese monster movie heavily influenced by the country's collective trauma over the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. The giant lizard creature Godzilla is a metaphor for the atomic weapons. It's a radioactive beast that leaves devastation and death in its wake, and the characters in Honda's movie have to cope not only with the fact that humanity's warlike impulses enabled the beast, but that the only way to counteract it is by developing even bigger and more potentially devastating weapons. The grim philosophy and running debate in Godzilla is a far cry from the much shallower ethical conundrums in the latest offshoot of the franchise, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the CGI-heavy 2019 film that follows 2014's Godzilla and brings back the giant lizard to fight on humanity's behalf. With great power and great height and great atomic breath come great responsibility, apparently. And this week we're going to track how we got from a man in a rubber suit representing the bomb to a CGI model exploding like one. That that didn't seem so hard. Excuse me. Got to go burn my computer now so no one else can use it. Well, in the meantime, this week we'll be talking about the 1954 Godzilla and how it stands out from the endless B-movie creature features it inspired. And next week we'll bring in King of the Monsters for comparison and see how it scales up the story. Get it? Scales? No, please explain it to me, Tasha. I don't understand. Wait. Why am I spelling smoke? Oh, crap. Maybe I should have joined Genevieve and headed for Michigan while I had the chance. who've lived with any franchise for decades, it's often a fascinating experiment to go back to the first movie in any series and see how little it resembles its successors. Alien is a sophisticated, melancholy horror feature that's a far cry from the increasingly weird, gory, fast-paced action beats of Ridley Scott's recent films in the series. 
the original Friday the 13th is a surprisingly beautifully shot, moody movie that has very little to do with Jason Voorhees stalking sexed-up teenagers through the woods. In the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Freddy is meant to be scary and unstoppable, not the goofy, mean jokester he became in later installments. And beloved genre franchises like Star Wars or Star Trek have evolved visually and tonally over the decades in big and small ways. So even directors who are openly trying to evoke the earliest films in those series still end up with something sleek, modern, and fast-paced that doesn't really feel like where the series started. Filmmaking tastes and styles change over decades, and long-running franchises tend to function as maps of those evolutions. But sequels also have a way of flattening any nuance out of an original story, yanking out and repeating their most popular elements until the original intention feels a bit lost. That's certainly the case with 1954's Godzilla. A lot of Godzilla fans have probably only seen weekend TV matinee movies like Son of Godzilla or Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, or modern reinterpretations like the 1998 Roland Emmerich Godzilla or the recent Japanese reboot Shin Godzilla. Those people may be surprised to look back at the original and see how little Godzilla there actually is in it and what a bad guy he is. Over the years, Godzilla morphed into kind of a big, fun, stompy dinosaur figure for kids, and he gradually became a hero figure, often defending human cities from worse monsters. But in the original film, he's a stand-in for humanity's hubris. He leaves thousands of people dying or dead of radiation. And there's no way to stop him, unless Japan's most principled and angst-stricken scientist turns an even larger weapon on him. Honda's Godzilla starts with a series of ships getting destroyed at sea, and it focuses first on the doomed sailors on those ships, then on the anguished responses of the families of the missing and dead. Nuclear testing has awoken or freed Godzilla, and he responds by seeking out power sources, flattening energy plants, and stomping through small villages, leaving devastation in his wake. There's very little daring scheming or heroic adventure in the first Godzilla, which regards its giant lizard as a weighty responsibility and a sign of human overreach. The film, shot in stark black and white and lit like a classic noir, looks and feels much more like a classic drama than like a monster movie. Its characters are dealing with a giant radioactive atomic-breathed lizard, but also with a love triangle that needs to be acknowledged, and with one scientist's deep frustration that everybody is more concerned with destroying Godzilla than with studying him. It's extremely easy to see in that first Godzilla movie how Honda and his crew were pulling a classic horror movie trick by giving the dominant fears and anxieties of their era a threatening physical form that could be faced, fought, and ultimately beaten. The terror here is mostly of a titanic destructive force that leaves lingering agony and ongoing death behind it. Again, a metaphor for the atomic bomb. But the 1954 Godzilla also contends with the fear that in a world in crisis, there's no time for love or personal connections, and the fear that anything we create might be turned to unwanted, uncontrollable ends. It's a movie about lost humanity as much as it is about unstoppable monstrosity. And that's one of the reasons why there's no real triumph when Godzilla is destroyed at the end of the movie. It feels much like the end of the original King Kong, where everyone's a little chastened at what they had to do to survive. The architect of Godzilla's destruction destroys his life work and commits suicide to make sure the weapon he created can never be used again. But as Professor Yamane points out, as long as humanity keeps testing terrible weapons, a new Godzilla could always arise. The threat isn't a single monster. It's the monster within all of us, etc. and so forth, the kind of thing that speculative fiction has been doing since the beginning. Here, it's just particularly fascinating to see how those era-specific fears and the more general anxiety we all share about environmental contamination and escalating warfare rapidly morphed into a series about men in funny critter suits stomping on matchstick houses, and ultimately into audiences cheering as a digital update of Godzilla fries an entire city just to take down a fellow beastie.
you guys also just saw Godzilla King of the Monsters, like you've seen what the the current version of the character looks like. <laughs> What's it like at this point to go back to the 1954 Godzilla? I love it. I mean, I, I love this monster. I think he looks not as expressive, certainly, and, and not as mobile or, or lifelike in many ways. But I just find him really a striking figure. And I, I love the black and white cinematography. I, I love any time you see this creature like framed by fire or against like bright lights. It's just, I think it's really impressive looking. And you know me, I love my old special effects, but I, I love like the process shots of, of rising up the hill and the people running in the foreground. It's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for it. <laughs> I, I, I think don't, it's a good I don't... looking movie too. I think it's, I think you're pointing out how it's, you know, a shot like a noir film. I think it's very true. And I think that that's, it's a really effective choice too. I don't disagree with anything you just said, but I still find it funny how you let off with, you know, he's not as convincing or as good or, <laughs> It's like that list could go on for a long time. You may not find it as scary or lizard-like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's all That's all true. I mean, to me, I mean, if you're talking about the difference between this Godzilla and future Godzillas, it's like a game of telephone or something that's gone completely out of control. <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, they don't have anything in common. We, we're, we'll talk about it a little bit, but I did... In addition to seeing this film, um, because we were doing Godzilla King of the Monsters, we we also, I think some of us saw part or all of Destroy All Monsters again mm-hmm. because it has all those creatures in it. And like, at that point, it just had gone wholly into camp territory. There's none of this uh, grave concern for humanity or, or the arms race. Or, There's some lip service to humanity. Yeah, but I should say but so. But just mostly it's just service. like, hey, all these cities are being destroyed. What I will say, though... W- you know, this film I was very late in catching up to. I was, I'm not like, I wasn't Keith Phipps like or Tasha Robinson like in uh, seeing a lot of these films as a cinephile. I, I just, it was one of those sort of blank spots for me. So I caught up with it uh, when it was released on Criterion and I was completely shocked by what I saw and my reaction to it because I, the prevailing emotion i had watching the movie was just incredible sadness yeah <laughs> i mean yeah. just it's just absolute sadness so in, in, in those images in the last third where godzilla gets to tokyo and just lights everything on fire and you have you have a mother and her two children huddling and she's talking about how they're going to join their father and it's just like this nation this is coming from a nation that has been deeply deeply traumatized by a real life event and we're seeing this movie that was made not terribly long after that event and it's all just as raw as can be i mean this movie is so on the surface and and, and raw it's something it really is i mean if for all of its uh you know awkwardness is it's a pretty special film yeah it's it's kind of easy i think to see why Godzilla made such an impact and it's really it's gonna be really hard discussing this because you can't hear the italics when we're talking about the creature versus when we're talking about the the movie title but uh, Godzilla the creature in this movie like I feel like whenever he's seen from a distance uh, he's this weird puppety thing with googly eyes (laughs) yeah and then the camera just keeps like finding him from close to ground level like like really close up in that stark lighting and he's so craggy and and pebbly and and tech Textured, like those giant spikes on his back seem to have real weight. That suit apparently weighed like 200 pounds. And, <laughs> and the actor in it <laughs> had a really hard time moving and it, it didn't breathe at all. And they would have to like 
dump his sweat out of it afterward. Oh my God. So, but you can really feel that weight when it's lumbering around. Like there were later iterations of Godzilla that, that felt very like light and floppy. Uh, but this thing has like gravitas to it when you, and when you see it close up, it's intimidating and kind of starkly beautiful. But that said, as you say, it does have some issues. I'm I'm curious how you guys uh, <laughs> like deal with the the kind of lumpy pacing. Like in particular, it seems like there's an awful lot of probably stock footage of the military doing stuff, mm-hmm. none of which comes to anything. It, it's pretty much just you know now we're going to drive a, a bunch of trucks around uh, <laughs> to show you that the military is doing something, and it feels in to some degree like. You know, it's it's continuing the metaphor. It's continuing, like, this is Japan's war experience. Like, here's all of our material. Here's, uh, like, all of this proof that we are that we have a big defense system. And none of it came to anything. Like, all of it's just going to get flattened. But at the same time, I just don't find it all that interesting to watch. No, and the central love triangle doesn't really, isn't really all that engaging. I'm, I'm no, I know. <laughs> Come I, on, man. I know it's everyone's favorite part of that film <laughs> is the love triangle. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that, that takes up a lot of time. Uh, but I just find that that the uh, the actual attacks are so striking, and there's sort of the sense of how life is going on ar- around it. Is uh, you, you kind of need a little little space between them for it to be as effective as it could be. It's not. It's not a. It's not a super long film either. It just, it does. It does have its. It's it be shorter. It's, it's ninety six or something. Yeah, it has, mm-hmm. it has its baggy parts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do really like Takashi Shimura as as the concerned scientist who does who rather study Godzilla than kill Godzilla. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think if you have someone else in that part, it, it comes off as, you know, character comes off as potentially silly because you got to kill Godzilla. It's Godzilla. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think, he, you, you know, with his his gravity, you really feel the, you know, the, the scientific impulse. And, and, and I think it really helps tell the tragedy at the end because when people are crying at the end, it's, you know, as, as you said, it's for what they had to do. It's for what they've lost. But also, like, you know, they just killed this giant creature. That's a traumatic thing to have to do. I never really thought about it that way. Well, it's uh, like at the end of King Kong. There's, there's, it's, it's the sadness comes not just from what's happened to New York, but what's happened to this, uh, this, this creature who's had this downfall. Though I guess is this is this is negative a, a view of Godzilla as we are, would experience though in terms of like because I mean again this game of telephone has landed us at a place where Godzilla is you know a defender of humanity mm-hmm. a protector of humanity you know an important part of the natural order but here you know he's a hostile force he's crushing yeah. cities he's 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 uh, lighting everything on fire so mourning his loss I'm not sure is it, it's it's was something I was really thinking about. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's a regrettable choice they had to make anyway. Um, I, I, obviously, you got to get rid of Godzilla. But I, I, one thing that, that um, uh, sounds like you listened to it, but the David Callett uh, commentary track that's on the Blu-ray and on the Criterion. Mm, I uh, didn't actually listen to uh, it. There's, there's some really good stuff on there, but he points out that how the attacks are... Godzilla is not just mindlessly stomping through. He's just actively tearing things to pieces. I mean, he's a very hostile force. It, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a malicious uh, attack, which when you watch this, it kind of is. He's just kind of kind of tearing everything apart, all the landmarks. You know, I don't know Tokyo geography uh, particularly well, but apparently hits every every major district and, and takes out <laughs> oh as God. many you know, landmarks that will be more recognizable to to Japanese audiences at the time than they are to us now. But but there's a lot of uh, a lot of things are, are, are 
taken care of with great aggressiveness by Mr. Godzilla. Yeah. yeah, that came across for me, I think, a little more clearly on this viewing was just sort of a sense of, you know, it's not that it's a great beast that's attracted to electricity and that's why it keeps ending up at power plants. Yeah. Like it's actively picking up buildings and dropping them to smash it's them. It's a jerk. You're taking out <laughs> trains, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, see, why Why aren't there more movies called Jerk Godzilla? Yeah, but I, I still think there is the Shimura has made enough, Shimura's character has made enough of a case that you can't see it as, as just a, a wholly positive thing to have killed this creature. Sure. Uh, but his point does seem to be like, we could learn a lot from uh, we could learn a lot about how to resist radiation sure. from it as opposed to an entirely pure like it's just a shame to to destroy this like last of the titans just, one of the other things i kind of appreciated about godzilla 2 is just this sort of uh proto jaws narrative strategy of of giving you a little little piece little piece of them at the beginning and then kind of before giving the full thing later on and then there's also kind of this bit of just like denying that it's a threat and kind of sending more ships out and, and getting, what, what and getting a bad result that? from that. Like uh, at the very beginning of the film, they're like, uh, there was a ship in this area and it sank. So we sent another ship and it sank. A- so we sent <laughs> 17 more ships and they all sank. We're not sure what to do. We're thinking of sending more ships. It's not meant to play as a comedy. Like you have all of these like suffering, angry, scared people like asking questions about it. But I, every time I watch it, I kind of laugh because it's just like, well, the first 17 ships sank. Maybe we'll have more luck with ship number 18. Anybody want to volunteer? Let's just send it and just sit it there in the middle of the ocean where the other ones like It's like a Three Stooges routine. It's something you get poked in the eye and then he's going to slap his little face <laughs> and go back for more. Yeah, uh, yeah I think I think there were probably, probably after uh, those first couple of ships at least, maybe a different approach was warranted. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, kind of, I was kind of curious though about Yamane's strategy though in terms of studying rather than destroying Godzilla because I wonder if there's any opportunity to do that I mean whether this creature only attacks when provoked it seems like kind of a long shot right well it just doesn't, it seems like this creature is just attacking yeah it wouldn't it would not I mean maybe we, these, we woke these... it up and now it's just going to keep right, exactly so really you can't I mean this the these study this creature strategy is kind of a bad one he, he's an idealist He's an he's an idealist. And but he's I mean, a scientist. Like, it's like it's like <laughs> he's like hmm, he seems to be destroying cities. Let's like you write down write that put put this in your but notes. In How many cities have he can he destroy during this time period? <laughs> Let's compare this to other seasons. <laughs> Fascinating. If I, if I can attract the angle and velocity of this fist coming at my face, I might be able to prevent <laughs> future fist in my face somewhere down the line. Also, ouch. <laughs> no, I just want to make sure. I don't. You know, I I, I respect science but i think in this case you real uh, the, the the case for destroying godzilla is it's, it's a uh, strong one it's a good one it is a strong one <laughs> but not necessarily destroying the oxygen with the oxygen destroyer wow no the most dread weapon <laughs> <laughs> the oxygen destroyer uh, it it comes across as a slightly odd translation which is like why it when it keeps coming up in king of the monsters uh and they're just and they're calling it outright calling the weapon an oxygen destroyer i feel felt a little like I sometimes feel watching modern Marvel movies where they're stuck with goofy ass like <laughs> villain names from the 1960s and it's just like we just we just got to swallow this guys yeah. we got to we got to have I, these I villains. actually had a moment I had a moment in watching the new one where it was like oxygen just, just oxygen destroy what a stupid idea yeah, I, I, then, I, then I watched God's, the original Godzilla I was like oh just, 
of course. I've seen reviews that that have uh, have run with that idea without r- realizing it's an homage. Yeah. To the yeah. Uh, oh boy. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, that was, we are getting ahead of ourselves. I'll say bad. this: that that they didn't have to call it an oxygen destroyer in the new one. They didn't, but I mean, the concept of a weapon that destroys oxygen. I mean, you know, the fears that uh, the initial atomic testing might ignite the oxygen in the atmosphere mm-hmm. and just like literally destroy all of the air and kill everybody. Like that was a real fear. It wasn't a prominent fear, but it was one of those like we won't know until we test it, and we if if this goes wrong, there's not going to be anybody left to to fix it. Uh, I feel like they're maybe trying to evoke that kind of fear. It's mm-hmm. like he, there is something ubiquitous that's all connected to each other that we need to live. And if we start destroying it, it's like it's ice nine. Like there might not be an end to it. So I think I think you need to test on less essential gases than than oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta start. You gotta start with. You gotta start a, di- a different place on the periodic <laughs> table. Argon yeah. destroyer or something like that. Right. Yeah, who need, who needs argon really? <laughs> Do uh, did, have either of you guys seen the uh, the Raymond Burr recut uh, Destroy All Monsters? That's the that's that's actually I was not I mean, aware of King this. of the Monsters. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Godzilla King of the Monsters. King of the Monsters. Yeah, I mean, for years it's the only one you could see. In yeah, but I never saw it. Like uh, much like Scott, like Scott Scott called me out like I was some kind of expert, but I didn't see Godzilla until the Criterion edition came out, yeah. and they made a big deal out of the fact that there was no Raymond Burr, there was no uh, gigantic cuts to it, there was no completely rewriting. The dialogue for an American audience, like this was the original, and that was the only version that I saw. I haven't seen the Ray. Ray oh, Burr I mean, I know I saw it on VHS. Well, long, you, you, you know, time. you know, I mean that that the Criterion edition has it on there. Oh, and and <laughs> and currently the Criterion channel has everything the whole package. Has, ah, uh, that's nice. how I watched it's got them both on there. It's, it's, got, it's got Godzilla King of the Monster, which I did watch. You know, because again, due diligence is part of the d- d- dissolve my dissolve review. I did go through the materials and watch a good ch- a chunk of the Raymond Burr thing, which is interesting because it has footage that isn't in Godzilla, it and it also has really awkward scenes of Raymond Burr talking to the backs of these char- characters that we know from this movie's heads. You know, obvious stunt doubles <laughs> and like yeah. comedy on the action and like comedy. If I remember, I haven't seen it in a while, but if I remember correctly, comedy on the love triangle. <laughs> Yeah, like he had information he has no way he was in any way privileged to know. You know, but 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 it does because he's he's present and because of the style of the film, it has a documentary like Mm -hmm. quality that 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 the Japanese version doesn't have. It's not. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's not. It's not not bad. It's not better. (laughs) It's not better, but it's not bad. I mean, it's definitely you can see why. It's it's interesting. It's got new stuff. It's got stuff that isn't in this movie. So worth your time. Yeah. I think, it, is it short? It might be even a little shorter. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having never seen it, I, I always sort of mentally pictured the Raymond Burr segments as uh, kind of like the Dr. Scott segments from Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> you just kind of have a guy sitting in a chair saying, Godzilla is right outside and we all need to talk about this. It's not that far off. <laughs> <from him>. <laughs> <laughs> a, I he moves around a little right, bit. Right, yeah, well, as much as Raymond Burr moved around, really. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I I read about this, and then like I didn't have the time to do the full research to see if it was if it's true because it this seems uh, fascinating and incredible. But uh, like all of the references I saw to it trace it back to a book that obviously I didn't have time to acquire and read. 
But reportedly, the movie was not super well received in Japan. It was criticized as exploiting the war and the emotions mm. that people had the war, had about the war in the same way that uh, a lot of like big city destroying action movies in the years after 9-11 were accused of uh, taking advantage of people's emotions and, and cynically playing them for cash. And then the Raymond Burr uh, version was was made for America several years later and got pretty good receipts like overall like it did really well and it actually has been credited as the reason that Godzilla became an international like a big international hit and all the sequels happened so reportedly in the years after that because the movie was so well received in America opinion of it in Japan started to shift and it ended up with a much more positive reputation which I just I find fascinating like the idea we're laughing over this comedically butchered version of a classic but apparently the comedically butchered version made the classic more popular and enabled this whole franchise in in the the first place what seems almost more more plausible to me though is the idea of the film in, indeed being a shock and hard to even process in 1954 and then it may be settling in the culture a little bit you know what i mean being being like okay that this film had kind of a approach and a tone that was maybe more mournful and respectful than we initially thought that it had you know interesting substantive things to say about about the nuclear arms race and all those related issues i mean maybe it just maybe it also settled a little bit that way as being a much more substantial and less exploitative film than it seemed like at the time yeah i think about i mean one point of comparison that comes to mind immediately is dirty harry which was released inspired by the zodiac killings and released obviously before the Zodiac killer was caught because it still hasn't been caught. Uh, and, and just in theaters, like playing out sort of this, this really heightened kind of tasteless, I, mean, I love the movie, but kind of tasteless ver- version of, of real life events. But I think just like the reaction to that movie was so, was so hot. And at the time I can see, yeah, like you said, I can see it settling as, as well. Yeah. I, I believe that is correct. That is, that is kind of my understanding of its Japanese reception as well. I mean, it's kind of like in some ways it's on a movie where we get a sequel here because it did well abroad it might might be just as simple as, as the economics there too mm. what is there i mean is there something too about the eventual japanese embrace of godzilla that also informed uh the transformation of that character too and into a maybe a symbol of of power in you know japanese resurgence and might than than a symbol of of destruction I mean, again, I don't know. I don't know the history, but it seems that seems like a logical thing to have happened, too, right? I mean, the the slow transformation of Godzilla from, you know, the horror that that devastates our country and that we can't control to the, the a national hero who fights for our people is pretty fascinating. Just like the embrace, I guess, of that destructive power, and it does mirror the way a lot of horror franchises seem to drift. I like Nightmare on Elm Street is always the one that stands out for me, but like the drifting of uh, Freddy from like this horrible thing that haunts your dreams to like the goofy guy that the audiences cheer for because he's the one consistent thing in the story. Like teenagers come and teenagers go and like he kills them off in comic ways and none of them sticks around long enough for you to care about them. But like Freddy is the central thing. So you end up cheering for him. And it seems like it's the same thing here. Sort of. It's not like the teens ever teamed up with Freddy to fight off other monsters. <laughs> it is such a strange thing. I, I, it probably has... Somewhere much... Rest Craven is like writing down that sentence <laughs> and like dispatching some lawyers like uh, against you. Uh, I don't think Wes Craven's going to be yeah, doing that, unfortunately. <laughs> but, well, there's that. Um, but, but I mean... Maybe uh, Radioactive Resurrected Wes Craven? Uh, maybe. There's, there's a movie idea. But uh, I think it also has to do with 
kids embracing it too. And, and it, I think subjecting the kids to the horrors of, of, of a, a nuclear metaphor uh, again and again and again is probably not going to really uh, allow it to take root among like for Saturday matinees and things like that. But Godzilla fighting other colorful monsters, like it's kind of like, I mean, the kaiju genre always struck me as, as really closely affiliated with, with pro- professional wes- wrestling in terms of its, uh, you know, its aesthetics and its tone and, and everything. It's like, well, who would win between Godzilla and fill in the blank? You know, that's a, a, there's your movie right there. I think it's fun, but I, I think, you know, this is, this is the movie with real substance to it. And, and the others are, uh, that I, I know expert, but, but the others are, are, are fun and, and, you know, maybe perhaps they don't quite as much going on beneath the surface as this one. I feel <laughs> beneath the surface, so to speak. So to speak. I feel like, uh, you're definitely the kaiju expert in the room. No, I'm not. To- no, I, I, I've seen, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, a few, but, but I'm not an expert. No, yeah, it's still like uh, more than us. I've Did seen they- a few means he's, no, he it's, knows it's, it's, he knows what he's talking I, about. I, I, well, anyway, go well, ahead. relatively speaking, I mostly, I guess what I was going to ask is one of the things it, it does seem like later movies lost the idea of like Godzilla as this, this unstoppable horror that we brought upon ourselves, but they always kind of kept the idea of him like being in some way related to uh, atomic or nuclear power, like whether he was mutated by it uh, from like a small lizard. And that's how we ended up with him or whether he's like this radioactive monster, like from the earth's radioactive core or whatever. It seems like that was always something that just kind of like stuck around in the zeitgeist in a weird sort of way and i find that an interesting phenomenon like if we're losing what all of that meant but we're still keeping the signifier like as just something core to godzilla is that he's like radioactive or atomic i just find that interesting well i think you lose also just i mean japan obviously is a special case but i think globally you lose just sort of that reflexive fear of anything radioactive because you have whole cities powered by radioactivity by, by uh, nuclear energy and and things like that and obviously that has a downside as well as as, as evidenced in you know across the globe including in, in Japan with with you know problems with nuclear reactors and such but at the same time it's not just this scary new force that's been introduced in this most in the most horrific way imaginable and that that still holds but it's stuck around and found other uses and kind of like Godzilla uh, in a way <laughs> I mean, is it, is it worth talking about the director to Ishiro Honda as a caretaker for this franchise? Because he did four of them. Yeah, he, he, he definitely did, he did this stuck one. He did by King it. Kong versus Godzilla, Mothra versus Godzilla, and then Destroy All Monsters. Oh, but there's more. He did. He also did Terror Mecha Godzilla. Oh gosh, yeah. There's uh, a whole. Like there's Ghidorah, a, there's the three headed monster is part of the franchise. Yeah, but what? But uh, what, what do we know about Ishiro Honda? I mean. Kaiju is obviously the thing he's most associated with. He did other stuff as well. He has an interesting bookend to his career where he started out as Akira Kurosawa's assistant director and graduated doing his own features. Uh, but in the latter part of his career, he reunited with Kurosawa, who he's friends with, and Kurosawa, uh, you know, his eyesight was failing. And then many of his, his later films, he needed help just to see things and honda was his his guy just kind of hanging hanging around and helping him out i mean he has different credits like production coordinator and creative consultant and things like that but my understanding is he was basically his right-hand man on on things from from kagemusha in 1980 through the end and Matadayo in 1993 and he's actually credited as a, a director on dreams um mm-hmm. on some of those segments but i mean uh, i think my understanding though even as early as stray dog he was directing whole sequences, and that was in a very early Kurosawa film, but he was directing whole sequences 
Kurosawa gave him a lot of creative leeway to do his own thing with, with, with certain parts of the film. Yeah, and Kurosawa actually outlived him by five years. So I wonder what happened uh, as far as uh, Kurosawa's directing uh, after he passed on. I, I do want to focus just a little bit more on the romance story. I feel like the problem is maybe in the execution uh, rather than anything else, because I really do like the concept, at least. Like, in theory, the idea that as this disaster is happening, you've got this little personal disaster. And it's kind of a break between old world and new world. You know, you have a woman in a an enraged engagement with somebody that she really does care for, uh, which feels very old Japan. And then you have her falling for a young man with with, you know, arguably less status and less prospects, but who loves her in return. And she wants to marry him, but she wants to respect the connection, the familial connection and the connection of duty and obligation that she has to the other man. And there's never time to to bring this up. You know, there's never a way to communicate this because they're always in crisis because of this completely unrelated thing. In theory, like as I just described it, I think that sounds really powerful and, and emotional and evocative. Mm-hmm. But, but the execution that we have is basically just some very straight faced people occasionally saying, did you tell him? No, I didn't tell him. Uh, and or looking sad. Like, is this yeah. do you think this is a plot that could have been rescued if it had played differently? Maybe. I, I think it, I think part of the problem is it's so out of balance. I think I think Sarazawa is a much more compelling character than uh, uh, Ogata, the sensible romantic lead who I I think it's kind of a, a drippy, ill-defined character in this film. I mean, I think it could have been saved because I think you could see how elements of it could work because it, because the romantic triangle is tied in so strongly to this critical decision that has to be made, right? I mean, every, everyone has a stake in the actual what to do about Godzilla question. And so and so to have those two things lumped together is is good. But weirdly, enough, the film, what's kind of weird about the film is that it takes a while to kind of get to that level of urgency that you just the film kind of just stops uh kind of puts aside the very important matter of godzilla potentially just destroying the whole country <laughs> it is so important it, it is an important matter it is important but i think you but, but i just think like the relationship stuff is just like you know doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this uh, crazy <laughs> world um so that's a good line they should put that in a movie <laughs> so i think it, that's the issue is that it is that if it were more wholly tied to this decision and with an engagement by all three characters in uh, deciding what to do about the Godzilla problem, um, then how, I think how do you solve a problem like Godzilla? This should have been a musical. Why works. wasn't it a musical? But in, but in its current form, it just results in some pretty awkward, stilted sort of lapses. Um, because, you know, I mean, ultimately, performance-wise, I mean, you know, I mean, this film doesn't really do conventional dialogue scenes all that well it's not really its strong suit so all of the weakest elements of the filmmaking really are exposed with these three yeah i mean apart from shimura i just it doesn't seem like a very actor focused movie although you know i say that i actually do like akihito harada as uh (laughs) sirizawa Mm -hmm. as sirizawa uh there's something just sort of like grimly tragic about him mm-hmm. from from day one. It's a great character. I love that character. I do. I, I'm glad you singled him out. I think it's a good performance and a really great character and someone who's who's so intense about his research and what he's done and and the, and the choices he has to make and the choice he ultimately does make. I, I, yeah, that is he is he's kind of, he's a real standout in the movie. And I'm gonna... a little bit of trivia here: Akira Takarada, who played the romantic lead Hidoto Egata, 
Silva. Uh, this was his first film. He's still alive. He's still acting. He was in a, a 2019 movie called Dance With Me. Oh, wow. And he was in a deleted scene in the 2014 Godzilla. <laughs> That's going to suck. Like coming back from, from your earliest days of glory <laughs> for uh, a cameo, like to recognize your cinematic history and then having them be like, mm, nah. Well, is there anything else you guys wish uh, had been carried over through the the million followers from this movie? Is there anything else that they could have learned besides uh, Godzilla is craggy and scary and it's fun to watch him stomp impeccably made tiny models of of tiny buildings? They're really good in this. I feel like kind of comparing it to Destroy All Monsters, um, I find the models there really charming, uh, but much less convincing than the models here. I thought the the opening airport was pretty impressive mm-hmm. with its its tiny moving cars. I mean, you know, you're looking at a model, yeah. but it's so elaborate. Like I find myself in in the way you sometimes do when you're watching like old school physical effects. I'm just I I look at that set with all of its little moving pieces and think like. That's like hundreds of hours of people's time, like like gluing teeny tiny little window panes onto teeny tiny little windows. Also, somebody can come along and step on it real good. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go my usual thing about old effects, but I just feel like this is you know movies are, are kind of dreamlike, and this this is the reality of the film is this is a world where buildings kind of look a little bit like models. I <laughs> know <laughs> uh, and, and one thing um, that really makes this film work. That we haven't talked about it, is the music too. Oh is, yeah, of course. Uh, Akira Ifukube, who did the music, and and there's there's a lot of interesting things about him on the commentary track. If you give that a listen, but uh, he was uh, one of them is that he was raised in a part of Japan that was still heavily populated by Ainu, the the indigenous people, and a lot of it, um, his musical style was in, in this film and elsewhere was inspired by Ainu music, which was sort of like short repetitive phrases, which you know are used to, to great effect and and. In this film and, and other scores he did, he did a lot of kaiju scores, did a lot of the later Godzilla films, but he also did uh, films like Burmese Harp and a lot of Zatoichi films. He was very prolific. Oh, that's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, the soundtrack here is uh, pretty iconic and, uh, you know, reaches both like forward to other films that have kind of like quoted it musically uh, to films inspired by it. Like uh, Cloverfield has a uh, closing soundtrack that's very, very heavily inspired by the soundtrack here. I believe he also, if I'm not mistaken, he also was the person who created the the, yeah. the roar and uh, which is to me another thing that makes it so oh, it's, it's so yeah. distinctive. You know, you get it right the first time why why mess with it because it's so it's scary and it's effective and it's powerful and it's you know recognizably animalistic but but also like no animal you've ever actually encountered in real life and there's a little bit of screeching metal in there that just kind yeah. of speaks to all of the technological well, themes it doesn't it kind of like in the opening credits kind of just develop in a way you, it's not fully there mm-hmm. until a little bit down the line so you can kind of like hear the elements that are going into the roar before you get the roar Maybe I'm misremembering it, but I do recall, you know, there being this kind of buildup of sound and noise before it all, you know, gathers into this articulate roar that we know to be, that we recognize instantly to be Godzilla. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful sound. I mean, and that's, that's carried over to every one. I mean, every, every, no one has changed the Godzilla roar, or at least maybe if they've changed it, they've done very subtle modifications because you can't, you really don't want to mess with that part of it. That's right on from the start. It's kind of amazing. The elements that have been kept like that particular roar and the, the weird, uh, sort of 
turkey hand shape of the big spike things on his back mm-hmm. uh, and the like really pebbly quality of his skin. Whereas they apparently somewhere along the line finally just decided we need to lose the googly eyes. The, <laughs> the googly eyes are too much. Yeah. The floppy puppet version of him peeking over the mountain and the googly eyes are just not working. Let's fix that. <laughs> Work for me. But uh, I guess time, times change. I think an audience in 2019 would be a little bit uh, less receptive to the googly eyes. Yeah, maybe we're just, uh, we've moved on to a different era of googly eyes. Like, I don't know if you've <laughs> seen the the rash of people sticking googly eyes on, uh, like, monsters on, on film posters for this <laughs> and other things. And then just taking pictures of them and putting them on social media. But I think we have just a very different relationship with, uh, like, that googly eye image than they do We're back not then. frightened by them anymore. We're, we're not nearly as frightened by googling. Except in different ways. Googling. That's what we really need is a way to make Godzilla a metaphor for all the time we spend online and the terror of uh, <laughs> terror of the internet, our current cultural fixation. You really wandered off. <laughs> I love it. I know. It's just. It's like just like how can you make Godzilla relevant for every era? And uh, and the answer is the metaphor just needs to keep changing. What if Godzilla, but inside your computer? <laughs> All right. Well, this this time it's Charlie Brooker that's writing down everything you say and dispatching an army of lawyers to make sure that you don't use your own idea. We're going to let that one go and we're going to move on to feedback. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our last episodes on John Wick 3, Parabellum, and The Warriors brought us some thoughts from listeners. Uh, Scott, you want to kick us off here? Uh, Sure. Nick in Tacoma, Maryland writes, so you guys had this whole discussion about The Warriors, but you didn't discuss the racial aspects of it at all. This surprised me. The last time I listened to your show, you guys were going overboard in your wokeness by unfairly attacking Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. I say this as an African-American male who thought that film handled its subject well. So at the very least, I figured your examination of the Warriors would eagerly tackle the handling of race. In a few areas, the film was progressive for a 1979 major motion picture with white leads. There are important characters of color, especially black ones, everywhere, and a few of them are in true positions of power and authority. But if you examine it more closely, its problematic characteristics tend to stand out. Cleon, the warrior's black leader, is conveniently taken out early on, and while one can argue that strengthens the story by rattling the gang, the cynic in me believes it was a move more meant to clear the way for white males to be placed front and center. How truly forward-leaning would a film of that time be viewed if it had an African-American lead? Instead, the power vacuum was filled by white dudes. I realize no one would ever mistake this film for being very authentic, but considering white gang members had disappeared from New York City by the 1950s, having a power struggle between Swan and Ajax for control of the mostly non-white warriors now looks even more preposterous. Even worse, the black and Latino characters in the gang became relegated to supporting players with very little storylines and character arcs. Also, it goes without saying that they don't catch the eye of the couple of female characters who get substantial screen time. What can you say other than certain stringent cinematic laws needed to be followed in 1979, even though the story centered on New York City street gangs and made its way into theaters not too long after the peak of the exploitation era? White males got the major roles. White male characters got to be the on-screen leaders. White male characters got to be desired. Who am I kidding? These laws mostly apply to mainstream films today, too. Anyway, 
It would have been nice if 40 years ago, a cool film like The Warriors would have rightfully and realistically had a black or Hispanic lead character. But the question becomes, would it have still found new life later as a beloved, underappreciated gem if that had been the case? I think that's worth a debate. Shame such one didn't occur during the podcast. Ooh, brother. I think that's uh, probably, this is all uh, pretty fair. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that This is an obvious part of the film that we did not talk about it all. Yes, it's a fair slap on the wrist, but also I feel like Nick's doing our job for us. <laughs> Unpacks it all pretty pretty thoroughly there. And yeah, it, it, it is almost certainly a commercial consideration. I guess I was more thinking that I felt almost a little cynical to have a mixed race gang or cynical is not the right word, I guess, but but a little convenient and a little, you know. Calculating. Have, c- calculated, yeah, to have a mixed race, mm-hmm. race gang and that way that sort of the warriors are, are whatever, you know, you can't see their, if it's all white or all black or all Latino or whatever, you, you can see their motivations as being racial just by being, being a gang. But if you have a mixed race gang, these people are a little, uh, they're a little less easy to pin down as, as, you know, you can't see them as, as, as tribal in that way you can see them tribal as other ways you other things other things unite them other than other than race but uh the, the way to which the the black and latino characters get pushed to the margins is is laid out pretty pretty well in that letter yeah one defense i will make of the film regarding cyrus who is the leader who is the can you dig it person at the beginning of the movie is is that it felt a bit like a reflection of reality and that and that we had seen prominent black leaders being cut down by white assassins in the real world and so that had that quality here so a black leader with this grand vision that was the threat to white people and so white men take them out so that um, that one element to me seems seems resonant but the rest of the rest of nick's argument i think is pretty on point and so i definitely regret not thinking it through i think i was my feeling was like the film was probably trying as hard as it could to take race out of the equation, and when you and and you can't do that in a way. I mean, by taking it out of the equation, you you make it an issue in another way, in a way that Nick just articulated well here. I think it is interesting that from what we see of the other gangs, uh, they don't seem to be racially integrated. Like I feel like the warriors are presented as possibly a little more of a progressive or relatable or good guy gang because of the mix of races uh, whereas everybody else seems to be mostly pretty monochromatic in their makeup <laughs> well, <who laughs> except knows? as always for the baseball furies yeah, who knows what's going on underneath that makeup <laughs> or, well they're they're also just not monochromatic you know they're they're orange and and blue or whatever um the, all that said i honestly it occurred to me at the time and uh, then i think i just kind of moved past it and didn't bring it up in part because the movie's so cartoony that, uh, like, yeah, these guys are a, the leaders of this uh, street gang, or at least the new leaders after Cleon goes down, are white, but they also appear to be in their 30s. And they also <laughs> appear to be, like, again, as we did bring up, you know, not particularly invested in uh, turf or violence or crime or drugs, like any of the things that the gangs are known for. Like, they're so out of their element and they're so unreal. And the the new Walter Hill version with the uh, the cartoony panels uh, and the freeze frames and the animation moving from one to the other <laughs> makes it feel even more cartoony. And mm. on some level, I just didn't engage with this as like a story reflective of real anything. Well, the film is so cagey too in the way that it both 
exploits and then also distances itself from gangland as it actually is mm-hmm. you know and so the film wants to you know evoke trouble on the streets which was which was an actual real thing in 1979 but also get enough of a distance and and, and one of the ways it does that is is to kind of screw up the, <laughs> screw up the race thing as much as uh nick describes here yeah i i definitely agree that uh, this was something that we could have gotten into more though no, it's good later. Uh, this one's a lighter thing about the Warriors, um, but it is also taking us to task for something we didn't address. Uh, Keith? Steve writes, My older brother and I first saw the Warriors in suburban San Diego. We were 17 and 12, respectively. And its vision of brutal gangs traveling across an urban hellscape became our mental image of what New York City must be. So much so that when I was actually living in that newly gentrified city 20 years later, my brother was terrified of visiting me, asking, but what about the gangs? Uh But when viewed today, come on. I think you give this film way too much credit. Through a child's eyes, the costume choices were bizarre and terrifying. Through an adult's eyes, they're bizarre and ridiculous. What gang ever dressed like this? The opening summit holds all the terror of a Renaissance fair. And the only reason to think that gangs are dangerous is because we're told they are. For a film about gangs, what's really shocking is its lack of violence, the near absence of lethal weapons like guns and knives, and any true sense that the warriors are truly in danger. This reaches its apex when they are trapped underground in a subway station and are confronted by roller skating farm boys? Scary. When my nephew and I recently watched this film, we had to pause the movie because we were laughing so hard at this particular scene. Maybe the gangs of John Wick 3 are similarly attired, so this will come up next week. How could you overlook how the absurdity of the costumes completely undercuts the drama for today's audiences? Uh, uh. See, I'm going I'm to use the Pee Wee Herman defense, which is which is that uh, it meant to do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, th- I think the, you're supposed to find it kind of silly and and fun and weird and ridiculous, and not be find it at all intimidating and and, and real and sh- and shocking. So I, I I'm I'm completely fine with that choice and it, it it's one of the things i absolutely love about the warriors and will defend to the death is the, are the the costumes and the way these different gangs are conceived and yeah i mean the fact that you know they're, they're a bunch of guys on roller skates in in overalls i mean that's that's great why why, <laughs> why why are we objecting to this there's also just the sense i mean you can you can identify the tight gangs versus the ones that aren't like you look at, at the boppers who you see in the subway and they're all wearing those uh super shiny puffy purple vests and these natty hats with like purple headbands and feathers and they just look i mean they look like they just shed their zoot suit jackets uh and they've still got the rest of the zoot suit on mm-hmm. um but they're like they're together they're with it they know what's going on and then you have the orphans <laughs> whose costume is pretty much can you come up with pants and a shirt that's <laughs> somewhere in the green spectrum uh it's okay if it doesn't fit and it's filthy as long as it's green and like you have all of these uh people standing around you know they're they're all kind of scrawny they're all kind of like misfit looking but they're all wearing these sad tired limp green shirts in this desperate attempt to look like a gang and it's i mean it's kind of beautiful in its way it like it it suggests an entire world where gang members sit around and fervently debate are we going with orange trilbies or are we going with uh where are we all going to paint our half of our faces white and the other half black like what what are we going to do to distinguish ourselves i think also there's a little bit one thing we didn't talk about it there's sort of an influence of clockwork orange there oh sure it's good call this is ostensibly supposed to be the near future um despite the lack of any set dressing to suggest that uh but it is sort of the uh, i think the idea is that there 
there that things have gone a little gotten a little heightened in whatever the years between whenever it's uh people were seeing this film and the year that it's set that's a really good thought because i mean the costumes on clockwork orange are on their face ridiculous but you know they're meant to reflect a certain kind of youth culture that's very specific and it's about being different and standing out um i'm just looking at like a gallery at this point of uh different groups from uh the warriors and it's it's just it's such a hoot yeah, yeah. it's uh, i mean you like you almost want to want like baseball cards or something so you can collect them they're just <laughs> they're they're delightful although i am noticing uh, getting back to to nick's letter that the pictures of the turnbull acs who are presented as skinheads and like they're big defining point is that they've all got shaved heads is a really racially mixed gang which i did not process during the the film uh but apparently yeah, that's nothing, not what nothing more racial <laughs> nothing uh you associate more with uh, mi- uh mixed race than uh than skinheads skinheads yeah uh david patrick kelly's gang uh also that the, they're a, they're a bunch of mutts like their costume is the worst it's like they couldn't quite like make it through the voting on like what kind of jacket what kind of hat and they just kind of ended up going with a whatever man as long as it's black and you look unhappy that'll be fine well we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion to reach us leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpetroshow.net before we move on from feedback, though, uh, we did get a comment from uh, our old friend, Mike Vago, <laughs> longtime friend of, uh, of the podcast, of the Dissolve, of the AV Club, of everything we've ever done. And he wrote in, enjoying the episode, but give credit where credit's due. It was Michelle Yeoh, not Jackie Chan, who jumped a motorcycle onto a moving train in Supercop. According to legend, Chan tried to talk her out of the stunt because he thought it was too dangerous. Let me repeat that. Jackie Chan thought a stunt <laughs> was too dangerous. Yo, a former Miss Malaysia who could have had a very comfortable life had she so chose, <laughs> did the jump anyway. Scott, uh, you're you're saying that you were the one that said that. I don't even remember the context it came up in. Oh, uh, we Do were you? we were talking about uh, how uh, this is the John Wick discussion. We were talking about how action sequels, particularly in in Hong Kong, kind of escalated the stakes and the stunts and made each film was had a higher bar to go over than the one before. And so that that was the case with Supercop, which was the th- which was the third police story movie. I don't think you talk Michelle Yeoh out of anything. No. <laughs> I, think, I think she makes up her mind and she does. I, I, I don't. God, wow. That's, uh, I, I should have uh, definitely gave credit where it was due there. I mean, you remember the stunt and I'm, I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't remember that it was her instead of Jackie Chan. Well, fortunately, we have the mics of the world to thank. We do. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll pair the 1954 Godzilla with this year's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which completes Godzilla's journey from solemn symbol of man's humanity to kick-ass, supersized, explodomatic superhero. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, Fall 
and love.